This is a Colored Pencil Podcast, session number 94. Welcome to Sharpened Artist, a colored pencil podcast where we discuss in detail all things in and around colored pencils and the colored pencil artist. And now your hosts, Lisa Clow and John Middick. Hello, my name is John Middick, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Lisa Clow of Lockery Fine Art. So, Lisa, it must be Monday morning really early, probably about 3 a.m., because that's when we release these. How are you? I'm Well, that would be a normal time I'm awake, so I will actually be awake when this is released. Oh, yeah. I, I forgot about that, the vampire <laughs> over there. I'm great. How are you? <laughs> I am never better. So, Lisa, it's March... So what are we doing? We are answering our listeners' questions. I'm so excited about this, and we had quite a few questions come in. So we've got a nice, big, juicy list for you, and what are we going to start off with? First question. Hi, Lisa and John, and a little heart, Mark. Oh, I like the heart. That is I'm new to colored pencil. I kind of lucked out freehanding a drawing for my mom's Christmas gift, but now I would like to draw and color my sister's black lap that passed away last week. I'm at a standstill with this because I find it hard trying to draw one color fur, and since coat is flat and not furry, I'm not sure of colors and mainly what strokes to use. I'm so stressed out, and I know colored pencil is supposed to be relaxing help karen from new jersey you know this i i feel bad for you there karen um i know what you're what you're talking about because when you start out with colored pencil it is kind of it's a little bit overwhelming because you're thinking about the just this total color this one color and maybe it's black or something like that that you're looking at maybe it's brown you know and you're like what do i do here with this one color how do i create some variation so one of the first things that i try to do though is what i want to do is i want to think about the way that light really travels the way light works in shadows and the form shadows and the cast shadows and all of that and so you want to maximize those things because remember you want your drawing to look better than the reference if at all possible you want to be able to capitalize on any type of light source that you can find where it's reflected off of the subject and you want to capture that as well as possible. So what I try to do is I want to go ahead and block those in pretty early on in the drawing process. And you can go with some opposite colors. If you're talking about a very dark color, then you can start with some really bright colors or something that would be a complementary color. And you can start putting getting the shadows where you want them to be. And then what you've done is you've kind of built up a little bit of a roadmap for yourself so you can start filling in the rest of the area. But With fur, and I'm sure, Lisa, you're going to touch on this as well, you want to be very careful and pay special attention to the direction of the fur. And then if it's short fur, you want to make sure that your particular strokes are indicating that this is short fur. You're making short, maybe shorter strokes, but you want to pay attention to that. But that gloss and all of that stuff maximize those things and try to, you know, capture this light source and make sure that, you know, you're doing all you can to maximize this as as a painterly kind of look or a, a refined, you know, pencil drawing, whatever kind of look you're going for there. But 
that's that's kind of the way that that I would approach it. And, you know, you can do it. You can do this and just take your time, do a lot of planning ahead of time. But I'd love to see the picture after you're done. And here's the thing, too. When you're drawing animals with very short fur, largely, you don't have to draw in all those individual strands of fur. If you try to force those in, you're going to make an animal that should have a sleek coat look very fluffy. So be aware of that. Where am I going to put those lines showing through? Well, probably a few around the face, a few very, very short lines. And don't think that you're going to try to draw in each individual strand. That's going to give you a dog that kind of looks like he has zombie fur, where it's just kind of a mess. In this case, I generally will draw everything out looking extremely sleek, very, very smooth, not worry about brush strokes or the pencil strokes. And then I'll add some of those in later, but just a few clumps and clusters here and there. You're typically going to have the fur on a lab. You're going to see it more on its chest, around its ears, right as the ears meet the, the head. That was a hard word to think of. And a little bit around its back, some around a tiny, tiny bit. You can form the direction of the fur around the bridge of the nose and that area, but very, very short, very small, almost dotting at that point because it is so short. But you don't need to feel like you need to get all of that texture in there. If you go through my gallery, for example, on my website, look at all of the animals I've done there. Look at how many of them have fur showing. Not that much, just a few bits here and there. And I actually did a black leopard. You'll see that on there as well. And you can see how many colors I used there. One of the biggest mistakes that I'll see people make when they're drawing black animals is they think they're going to use black and then they're going to highlight with gray or white. When you highlight black fur with, and the same with black people or black hair on people if you're doing portraits, if you highlight with white or with gray, you age that animal or you age that person significantly. You will rarely want to really focus on the whites and the grays. In most cases, and there are exceptions depending on the lighting, but in most most cases, you're going to be using a lot of blues and a lot of purples and occasionally some magentas mixed in there. But your highlights are generally going to be those blues and purples, not gray and white. So that's just something to watch out for because, again, if you, you do those highlights, even if they're the, the perfect value, you've got them in the exact right spot. If you go with gray and white, you're going to make an animal that maybe you wanted it to look like it's two years old. Suddenly, it looks 15 just because of that color choice. So that's another thing to just really be aware of when shading black or black hair. Oh, I really like that because, yeah, the, the other thing is you're going to add a lot more life and vibrancy to the painting or drawing whenever you're adding more color in there. And you're not just adding shades. So uh, taking the, the reds, the blues and the purples and that kind of thing. Another thing that you made me think about, Lisa, it, the same thing goes with, you know, when you're doing horses, you're looking at a horse. Look at any drawing or painting of a horse that, that uh, you really admire, you really like. And, you know, invariably what you're going to see is hardly ever you're going to see any fur. You're not going to be looking and seeing hair. You know, you're going to be seeing the sleekness of, of that animal, that fur. And, you know, you're not thinking about the fur. And even then, I still have the fur on most of the horses. If I'm doing a portrait of its, a close-up of its face, you will see some lines, some brush marks or pencil yeah, lines. Yeah, depending on the, the zoom level, the obviously, I guess. But right. not a lot. You're right. It, it's just yeah, not yeah. a lot. If you add that in, you suddenly change that coat type and it no longer looks like right. that animal. Yeah. I mean, by necessity, if we're zooming in and we're really close and tight on a subject like an animal or hair on a head of a, of a human, then we're going to see more texture, right? But if we zoom out further, we're not going to see as much. So keep those things in mind. Okay, number two. On Jerry's site, Stonehenge paper is listed as 22 by 30, and on the 
how do you pronounce that? I don't I know. Don't, Utrecht? 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 I don't know. Sure. Okay. I don't know. So I'm glad on that we, site that I don't know, know how to pronounce, but I've seen it. But I've seen it before. Anyway, the listing says Stonehenge paper, 22 by 30, comma, vellum. Does anyone know if there is an actual difference? And are they both the same paper? Do Stonehenge paper sheets have a vellum-type surface? Now, the only difference I've ever seen in the, the surface type of Stonehenge is whether or not it's in a pad or sold in the individual sheets because they were made on two different um, or at two different locations or two different paper presses. I forget which it is. It's something like that. They're actually all intended to be the same. Uh, they didn't mean for the individual sheets from what I've been told to be different than the ones in the pads, but any artist who has used both knows that it is different. The ones sold in the, the smaller pads of paper, those seem to have more of a vellum finish to me. They're still not vellum, but it, it feels more like vellum to me. Whereas the individual sheets, those are the ones that I personally prefer to work on, unless working on graphite, then I like the, the one in the pad that feels more like vellum. But it, it's not really intended like they shouldn't be there shouldn't be a difference between the pad and the individual sheets and so with these the individual sheets on both locations it should be the same exact thing yeah so what are, okay so what what are we let's step back for just a second then what are we calling vellum then what are we actually associating with that term you know what i mean well i i don't think vellum is the right term in either case, mm-hmm. um, I think if we went to the definition, it probably doesn't fit exactly. I could be wrong on that. Probably not. But, I mean, yeah. but what I consider a vellum type finish or it feels somewhat like vellum is just that it's mm-hmm. really, really smooth. It's hard for me to own a paper that's too smooth to get the color saturation that I want for the techniques that I use. Now, I know other artists who prefer that. They get better results for their techniques using that paper. So it's not an issue of this paper is better than that. It depends on the techniques you're using on each paper. But for me, I just consider the vellum the the stuff that is so, so smooth that I have trouble getting the color saturation I want. No, right. Now, I just wanted to say, yeah, and I know I know what you're talking about there. So the, the thing the thing that I've noticed, and I use Stonehenge nearly all the time, and what what's going on, I'm working on a current portrait in, in Stonehenge, and I am using a pad that I cut, I cut down. It was a larger sheet out of a pad, though, and I'm using that. Now, what I've noticed, and somebody may think I'm crazy about this, so write to me and let me know, but I've noticed that the spiral-bound pads are different and they're very closely they're very close in the same type of finish as the the large sheets the 22 by 30 sheets but when i go to the colored pads i notice those are very spongy and they do have that smoother uh, surface that often people associate as being vellum. And actually, the reason I think that that's being called vellum, I looked it up. Even Legion uh, talks about that vellum surface. Stonehenge, or uh, Dick Blick, rather, says on their their site, when they've got the Stonehenge paper listed here, it says a flawless surface that is slightly mottled to resemble actual vellum. So that's the stuff that we associate with watercolor printmaking, uh, pen and ink, or pastel. Uh, this is the paper that we're talking about. It's this 100% cotton fibers, acid-free. They use this eco-friendly type of manufacturing where they're using the the castaway, the byproduct rather, you know, the stuff that would be waste otherwise, but they're using it from the highest quality fibers that is being going into the textile industry. So it's a very fine paper. It's a very good paper. But yeah, there are often some differences that we'll notice in some of the finishes. And just a very 
quick review here with regard to the finishes on paper, especially watercolor paper. And I think that what's going on with Stonehenge is very similar to this kind of thing. But what happens is, you know, we've got hot press that just refers to those uh, that smooth finish. And that comes from, in fact, when the paper is not completely dried, they use hot metal rollers to achieve that ironed kind of surface. It's less smooth. It's uh, uh, not as absorbent. And then we've got cold press, which... The paper is made the same way, but just as it's being dried, they use a cold metal plate, and that that happens before it's completely dried, and so there's a patterned texture that develops on the surface when they do that. And then the rough surface comes with that drying process not getting any kind of intervention whatsoever. And so that is, you know, that has a very rough surface, hence the term, but... You know, what we're talking about with Stonehenge, we don't really know uh, what they're doing exactly with some of that. I mean, they may be pressing this, and it kind of sounds like it from some of the things that I've read, that they're pressing this when it's not completely dried, and they're creating the finish that they want, that they desire, a less patterned kind of surface that would more resemble vellum. Uh, that's my best guess is that, like, to, to your point, Lisa, that they're probably doing this on a different set of rollers or something like that. I'm not sure exactly, you know, how that's happening. But, yeah, any of us that have used the paper, we can tell there is there is a slight difference. Yeah, and it's funny because when artists I've known of who contacted Stonehenge about this or Legion um, who makes Stonehenge, mm-hmm. they said no, they're they're the same. It's the same paper, and all of us will tell you no, it's definitely not. But as yeah. far as the two twenty two by like thirty inches, all, chances are they're both the exact same product. Um, because as far as I know, they don't produce. They're not intending any of them to really have a different finish. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. They're not. They're not saying that they have a different finish. I like them all, uh, and the finishes uh, actually are. They're they're minor. They're not that big a deal. You might have to sort of change your change your technique a little bit or something, but it's not, you know, it's not a, it's not like going from sandpaper to uh, smooth. No, it's not that big of a difference, but it's a big enough difference that I personally would not choose to do colored pencil on the ones in the pad. It just does not work at all for the techniques that I use. Have you tried it in the spiral bound? I think they're exactly identical. No, I actually haven't tried any of the spiral bounds yet. I think they're identical. Hmm, that's interesting. I'll have, to, I'll have to look into that. So our third question comes from Quinn, who says, I have a question regarding the colored pencil medium. What pencil do you use to draw out your picture before you add color? I'm a little fearful of ugly pencil lines showing through my colored pencil. I have been drawing my sketches in the base color of the subject I'm working on, so no lines show through. If I draw lightly, will the pencil still show through? Is there a certain type of pencil that disappears as you work over it or anything like that? Now, here's what I like to do, and I've seen different color pencil artists handle this differently, but I love the call erase line of pencils, and you can get a 12-set call erase line of pencils for about 12 bucks, so they're about a dollar each, and you can buy those most of the time in open stock at most stores, and you can completely erase those pencils, those pencil lines. They're very, very nice pencils. They erase very easily, so nothing's going to show through on your work. 
and you know it doesn't take a whole a big set you know to get you know you're just doing it for your line drawing so you don't need a, a complete 24 set or something like that just to start out now some colored pencil artists they'll use graphite i have done that as well the problem often with graphite depending on what hardness level you're you're using you know if you're using something in the h or you know or something in the b that'll make a difference but the thing that I've found is sometimes it can be difficult, especially starting out, to lay that down and not be light enough with your hand. And all of a sudden you got a mark and you forget about that and you've encased it in wax because you've drawn over it, you know, with your pencil, with your colored pencil. And then it's showing through and it creates this muddy kind of look. And I, I just don't care for that kind of look. I don't like that when, when you're done. Just a good way to get rid of that, though, is just to tap it back out with a kneaded eraser or something like that. So you can do either one of these, but looking for that local color or that base color of your subject, like you mentioned, is a good thing to do. I just would say try to be careful and try to use a light hands because you don't want the line drawing to dictate to you the value of, of your strokes that you put down. Now, I personally only use... My, my problem with using a colored pencil is that's not going to erase. And I think you're more likely to have problems with that than using the graphite, at least in my experience. I use either a 4 or a 6H pencil. A 5H would also work, but for whatever reason, I've only got the 4 and the 6H pulled into my colored pencil set. But those are the pencils I've used and I have never never had a problem with my line showing through or with it muddying I mean th those pencils don't mix the 4H or the H's won't really those lighter H's they don't blend they don't soften out no because you got a lot of clay in those and binders yeah and they're so a very they're hard, hard lead and so and it's a light the thing is color. you've got to watch two things one that you don't push too hard because depending on the type of paper you're using being, being that that is a very hard exactly. lead you can indent the paper so that's something to right. be aware of two you don't want to push too hard again anyway because you don't want it to be dark so I use a very very light hand when I draw and I've never had a problem using that but again it's always a 4H or lighter than I'm using and I use a very light hand and I've made students do this this is one of the things that I've had students do to practice I'll give them the pencil that I want them to draw with same pencil I would do and they will have drawn it like 10 times darker than what I would have done I'll make them start over again get a new piece of paper out and draw it out over again until you can get used to using a light hand if you start out with a heavy drawing don't do it don't even bother trying to shade over it because that could cause problems you want to start teaching yourself control with your hand and if that means that you start practicing writing sentences with a re as light as you possibly can do it so that you can barely see the writing then that may be the best thing that you can do but keeping that light hand is very important and using the graphite and again it's always worked for me never had a problem with it creating it mud but i keep that light hand and like I said, it's something you want to learn anyway. You want to get comfortable drawing with a light hand. So good practice. Either yeah, way. absolutely. Yeah, and and I really like that. I mean, the, the, having the control and teaching yourself the control, having the hand-eye coordination, being able to wield the pencil correctly, very you know, use a very light hand when that's needed, use a medium pressure, hard pressure when that's needed. That all is cultivated over time. I agree with you. But but yeah, what I'm saying is I don't like using graphite. I often can see the graphite and I think it's because I'm suspecting they're using an HB is what I think or a B pencil which I would never oh, recommend no. using. Oh no. Those pencil. will blend that will create mud. 
Every yeah, time. yeah, but I think that some are doing that. But anyway, if, if starting out uh, new uh, to colored pencil or to art in general, and you're still a little bit unrefined, you don't have that control yet with your hand-eye coordination. You can't control the pencil. You know your muscle memory with your hand isn't built up yet, and you cannot get that tip directed exactly the way that you want. Using something that is the harder lead, the H pencils, uh, H2, H4, H5 doesn't matter. But just keep a very, very light hand, especially if you're using a very delicate surface paper. Yes. Who makes that one? Strathmore makes their Bristol vellum. That was one I always had to have students really watch what pencil you're using because that 4H, which is awesome, you can easily indent that paper and that really shows when you start going over with colored pencil where the the pencil just kind of skips over that indentation. Yeah. Yeah, you're making impressed lines in that case. Number four. Michelle asks... What is the best way to purchase a variety of paper without investing in a pad of each kind? Is there a way to get a sample pack of a variety of individual sheets of paper that aren't so big that you have to cut them down? Everyone has a preference for one kind or another, but you can't have a preference without trying out a few brands first. Thanks. I have two thoughts on this, and the first one I want to throw out When you're trying different types of paper, I don't recommend trying, like, let's say you got a sample, a 10-pack sample, which we'll go into. So you get 10 different papers. I wouldn't do all 10 together, like one and then to the next and then to the next. I would take one type of paper that you're interested in. You like the work that somebody's creating on that type. They seem to do techniques you're interested in. Do several pieces on that before you try another piece of paper, because it's going to be a lot easier for you to judge what you like and dislike when you have more experience on every given paper. I see this a lot where people are jumping from supply to supply to supply, and it's like, yeah, but you're giving reviews, and I see this on reviews online as well. You've only used each one once. You're not going to have as good of an idea in comparing it with others when you've only used each supply one time. So I would say go ahead and get a pad of paper or a few, you know, let's it comes with a 10 pack one that you're interested in find an artist whose work you personally are aiming for yours to look similar to or they use techniques that you're interested in try that paper do several pieces on that before you try the next type of paper and it is good to try different types of paper but make sure you do several on each it's going to give you a much better view i think of what you like and dislike about each But the second thing is you can actually contact a lot of companies like Dick Blick, I believe. I want to say it's Dick Blick. I could be wrong on this. Um, Jerry's, I've had, I've known of people who contacted art supply stores and asked for paper samples and they sent them small packs with several different types of paper. So that is an option for you. But if you really want a good idea of whether or not you like any given paper, I would do several, several projects. They don't have to be huge projects, but several projects on each individual type before you really decide if that's a good fit for you or not. Yeah, you can contact a lot of the uh, printmakers themselves, a lot of the paper companies rather themselves. The reason I say that is because I was thinking of Legion Paper. They used to, that's where they got their start. They were a printmaker. Anyway, yeah, you can contact them as well and you can ask for a sample and I think a lot of times they'll do that. But I don't think I really have anything to add to this, Lisa. I agree (laughs) with you. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just going to say ditto. I mean, I, I like testing out a lot of different papers, but it wasn't until I, I began using Bristol vellum first when I first That's came I to colored pencil. That's what I started with, too. 
you know yeah so i mean i i agree you got to you got to get some miles in first on on something i don't i don't think it has to be just one particular type of paper that you th- you think uh, might be just the best thing just try something and then you'll have some kind of comparison some kind of base level comparison some benchmark that you can make whenever you're comparing the next paper that you're trying but yeah it's not a bad idea to get a lot of small samples and just kind of you know fiddle around on little you know little tiny um, two by three or something like that and see how the pencil reacts that kind of thing but yeah give it give it a try though for a little bit and see what you think you know you're not gonna know yeah one of the things that always has made me laugh um, I've got a few video reviews with different products and especially my Prisma versus Polychromos video a lot of people were very angry with that because they decided Prismacolor is the best and so no one's allowed to speak against them but it always made me laugh because I'd have especially younger artists would comment and their profile their Google Plus profile would be there so I could go look up their work um but they would comment disagreeing with me how wrong i was prismacolor is the best blah 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 and i would go look at their profile and look at their artwork and it's like sweetie you've completed two colored pencil drawings you don't know yet you've not completed enough to really have a good um you can't compare you don't you're very new to the medium there's no way that you can review this in a way that would be helpful to somebody else because you've not experienced it enough yet I've got like 17 years experience with these pencils, so it makes it a little bit easier for me to judge. And that's not to say that I'm always right. I mean, I am, but it's not that I'm always right. It's, wow, no comment, John, really? Skype must have skipped. Processing, processing. (laughs) But I mean, I'm not saying that I'm always right. I'm just saying when I see somebody who's completed two drawings trying to argue with me about what's the better product, it's like you you aren't in a position where you've experienced enough to really have much say at this point. I mean, that's fine. You can like what you like. That's totally fine. But when someone tries arguing with me about what works best for which different type of technique, it's like, wait, you've done two things. So I think you probably should just reply. (laughs) You, Lisa, <laughs> and just say, did you know I invented all these pencils? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> all right. So, anyway, that's that's the best I can ha- ha- Have you right seen my Jon Snow portrait? <laughs> oh, dear. We cannot get past a podcast without you bringing up that portrait. Wow. It's not even one of my best. That's the funny thing. I don't know why it always oh, comes. It that's has to hilarious. Get so, the next question. Lisa, what good books have you listened to lately? That's from me. That's from John. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, John, thanks for asking. I am on the fourth Harry Potter book. Every, all, everyone knows I'm in love. Well, most people know I'm in love with the Harry Potter movie. So I finally started listening to the books. And this one is the one, there's, I guess, two different narrators you can go with. This is the one by Jim Dale, and he is phenomenal. Oh my gosh, I'm so impressed. But then Audible had a sale recently. So on top of buying those four books, I might have downloaded... 11 more. Um, it was a big bill. Might have. I've got a lot to listen <laughs> Matt, to. It's no. the, it, they had a big sale. It was the first in a series sale. And so there were just so many that I was interested in trying out. And it's like for 4 or $5 a piece, I'm just going to buy a all of them. It did get to a point <laughs> where hilarious. I wasn't done looking through the list of things I might be interested in, and I had to just turn off the computer. I'm like, no more. You've got enough. You're going to be set for a while, probably till the next time they have a sale. No more. Oh, man. I know that feeling. So, yeah, you can go over there to audibletrial.com slash podcast and download that book for free that Lisa's talking about. Any of these books, any of the 180,000 titles, and get it absolutely free for 30 days if you want. 
and just use our uh, code and you don't have to remember that it's in the show notes there's another good one here that came out recently the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde classic by robert louis stevenson there's also another another one from a good author one that i an author i really admire really like charles duhigg he's got smarter faster better the secrets of being productive in life and business one other one i'll recommend here i have not listened to me before you that one seems to be ranking really high though one of the top five best sellers so go check it out you can get any book of your choice one tip i will give you about that check you they have a feature where you can check and listen to or preview the author or the narrator because sometimes a narrator is terrible and sometimes a narrator will take a mediocre book and make it amazing so make sure you check listen to that narrator and see if it's someone you're going to connect with before you make that purchase that's a good tip these are actors these are often uh, very highly skilled voice actors and they really do a good job if you've listened to audiobooks from other publishers um, at, at any length at all you'll notice a big difference I think with the audible but not numbers. all of them because one I recently listened to sounded like someone reading the instruction manual for an Ikea couch it was the most dead boring and it's one of my favorite books and he just destroyed it it was horrible really? I couldn't I even find technical it. documentation. Huh? Um, enthralling. I said, I find technical documentation <laughs> audio so enthralling. It was monotone. So. It was painful. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. Yeah, and that is a nice feature that you mentioned there that you can preview and listen to it. What is it, about a minute, Lisa? It's, it's a long it seems time. Like it's really it's long. enough that you get a pretty good idea yeah. of whether or not you're going to like it. I bought that one anyway just because I already own the book, so it only cost me $2 for the, the Audible version. And I love the book so much. I'm like, oh, it can't be that bad. It was it was it was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. That's one free book at audibletrial.com slash CP podcast. And if you cancel on day twenty-nine, you'll never be charged. All right, well that's it for today's QA show. And if you have a question that you would like to have featured on the show, you can write to us podcast at sharpenedartist.com. You can comment. Many of these were found inside the Color Pencil Podcast group on Facebook. So you can go there and submit a question there, or you can go to the page sharpenedartist.com slash Q&A and we will talk to you guys again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. All the show notes can be found at www.sharpenedartist.com um, Sorry, editor, man. Several... Yeah, I can't talk. Have you seen my Jon Snow portrait? Oh, I'm so butting in. Oh, I'm rude. Um... It's going to be fun, I tell you. (laughs)